Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We've got a pretty good episode for you guys today. I, I think it's better than pretty good. You like this one? I do. Um, we have Kip McIntyre. He's an Australian panel beater, metal shaper, and a Winston Churchill Fellow. Which is really cool. Now, what is a Winston Churchill Fellow, you ask? I do ask that. Um, so I went on their website and pulled kind of the you know the description of what a sure. Winston Churchill Fellow is. Um, now, obviously, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of... Uh, the UK during World War II. That is correct. Uh, legendary prime minister. I I named my cat after him, and I'm sure he would be very pleased with that. So he my, also has his own style of cigar. He does. Well, my cat is fat and lazy, which is <laughs> not really exactly what Winston Churchill. But and my cat also gets along with everyone, so that's <laughs> probably not the, not quite what uh, Winston Churchill would want to be named for. But they were gonna when he passed away. They say, hey, do you want to? Obviously, Kip is going to talk about this too, but I want to give a little bit of background. Sure. So they were going to name like university after him. He's like, nah, that's not what I want. Um, the fellowship was created by a public subscription. I don't know what that means. Um, Australian thing. No, this is the UK. And I oh. think it's because Australia is like kind of like a, it's where, you know, the Australia is where they sent all the bad people from right. the UK. It's right. It's a penal colony. <laughs> col- col- <laughs> it's a penal colony. Yeah, which is great. Um, so anyway, by public subscription in 1965 as the living legacy of Sir Winston Churchill. I want to be a sir. Someday. I got to do something really cool. Yeah. Or Sir Christopher Cluel. Ooh, that, would be, that would be sweet. <laughs> um, every year we award 150 fellowships. These fund outstanding individuals to travel for four to eight weeks anywhere in the world, researching a topic of their choice among global leaders in their field. On their return, we help them to share their global learning with professions and communities across the UK. Um, these okay, are not. So I thought this was an Australian fellowship thing. No, it, well, it's, it's out of the UK. Though. It is out of the UK. Interesting. Um, okay. These are not academic research grants. They are practical inquiries into real world issues that fellows have encountered in their daily lives. They cover seven universal themes in society, healthcare, education, the environment, technology, communities, culture, and the economy. Um, so we're going to talk about Kip and how he got his fellowship and what he's doing. He he stopped by here on his way through. He's right. working with Chris Rungi. He was one of the people that he chose to work with. Now, he's a he's a metal shaper. So he, he just he's amazing at it. I mean, he makes the yeah. worst metal look like the best metal you've ever seen. <laughs> you know, if, if you had like a crumpled up piece of aluminum foil and you threw it in the trash can within five seconds, it would look like it was brand new <laughs> as soon as Kip got a hold of it. He's he's really, really good at what he does. I would yeah. I would call him a savant at it. Um, now, a lot of the people that have uh, that have gotten the fellowship have gone on to win Nobel Prizes. So wow. it's like a obviously he's not going to get a Nobel Prize in metal shaping. Well, don't knock him. Maybe he will. Cars could cause world peace. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll talk to him about all his travels, everywhere he went. Um, it, it's a really, really great episode. I, I hope you enjoy talking to him. Um, next week, we have, uh, just to let everybody know, because I always say, hey, next week, we've got something cool. I can just actually tell you what's coming up next That's week. That's nice. We have Patrick Long, um, the American sports car racing driver. Awesome. Um, the He's the only guy to ever be a, an American, ever be a, the factory driver with Porsche. Oh, as, really? As far as I know. Um, he's won all kinds of stuff. 24 Hours of Le Mans, Rolex 24. Petit Le Mans, 12 Hours of Sebring, lots of other stuff. He did like some minor NASCAR stuff, Baja racing, lots of karting. Really? Really, really cool. And I want to talk to him about his life, you know, all the sports car racing stuff. But I also want to talk about Luftkult and uh, or as it's colloquially known, Luft. So we're going to talk to him about that's his event that's out in um, Los Angeles. So he's the guy behind that. He's the guy behind Luft. And I just I think I'm going. So I think I'm going to go. So it'll be cool to talk to him 
about that. So that's coming up next week. Awesome. And before we get to what you and I have been up to, we have to mention our great sponsor, Renline. Uh, as you know, we partner with them to got, if to offer an awesome discount. Um, all of their products are extremely high quality, beautiful machined. I have several parts on my car. I just ordered a few more. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> and the quality really is illustrated by the fact that they guarantee every single product they create with the maximum amount of speed holes in the industry. <laughs> you wrote that down and I forgot not to read it. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> uh, you can get Renline Design Performance Parts for European cars, including, of course, Porsche. They've been in the business the past 20 years and have developed over 6,000 products to meet the needs of us Porsche enthusiasts. And as I've mentioned before, what really sets them apart is they aren't just another distributor, you know, online store. All their products are designed and engineered right there in house in Vermont. So be sure to check them out on Renline.com and use the code OVERCREST. And you'll get 5% off your next order, along with free shipping on orders over $250. So does your... Oh, first of all, are you going to come to Luft with me if I go? Are you going to ride with me or are I you going to fly? I was the one that brought it up. I know, but I've thought about going. It's not, I, it's not... It depends how much time I would have to take off if you're driving. That's really what it comes down to. Right. Probably four days. Total? Well, four days of... <laughs> Well, yeah. not including the weekend. Right. So four days, like we would leave on a Monday, get there Thursday. I'll work it out. We'll four see. Four or five days. I'd like to. So that's that's the and I'm I'm probably not going to take quite as an arduous of a route out that I normally take. Right. So I actually applied to get my car in. So yes, we'll, because what's cool about Luft is it's a very like it's an exclusive curated Porsche car show. Right. I would say, so like right? Patrick and a few other people go through, and he'll tell us about this next week. But yeah. they go through and they pick the cars that they want, and I I hope. I hope I could get in and have my car there and hopefully that'd be very cool. It, it's been around. The car's been around. Now, it's inspired if, people to, to it, explore. So hopefully you would only drive it. if your car was entered in the show. Um, I'm going to drive either way. I you think. are. Okay. Yeah, that I was my I'll, question. I think I'll drive either way. I think if I went there and was walking around, I think I would feel lame if I didn't have my car. Like if I didn't, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, you know, the, the title of my article coming out in triple um, zero by the yeah. time Luft is around is take the car. So you, okay, you it's, probably should live to your own first, mantra. The first paragraph is literally <laughs> ripping on people that take planes. So I, I, I almost. So it would be great if you're out there, someone read it and was like, hey, where's your car? You're like, like yeah, oh, it's at I, home. I flew. Yeah, I flew. <laughs> so I can't be a total hypocrite, I, which I mean, I really would like to drive the car anyway. Yeah. I really do enjoy that, of course. So Absolutely. Um, so what's up with your car? Is it run yet or is it still not running? No, it was running. <laughs> so i went through the entire electrical system as far as like the ignition so new new spark plugs new wires new distributor rotor and cap which I, is where you should have stopped i ditched the points so yes. electronic ignition that's okay. fine yeah, i guess that's all right and i actually i'm not even sure how the car was running before because i took that? the distributor out and i have never checked the points on this thing yeah and as i'm checking the points it it like doesn't open like there's, I don't know how it was getting spark. It's just like, it's like spark yeah, all the time. Spark all the time is what like, I'm imagining. Like electrical current, yeah, all basically. cylinders. Uh, also cleaned up the wiring over there, relocated the coil off to the side where all the other electronics are behind the panel. Yeah. I got the timing spot on. Great. It looks awesome. And? What? And? And, and it ran great. Oh, you told me it didn't run. Well, yeah, that's because there was an issue with grounds. Oh, you just didn't have a ground hooked up for what, it was, the distributor? No, it actually was even worse than that. It's one of the factory wire harness connectors where there's like 12 pins there. Yeah. They were corroded. 
Oh, of so it were. was running for a while. And then as soon as I rebuilt everything and put it back together, it wasn't running. I was like, uh, okay. And so I'm here. I am taking everything apart again and it just started to go again. And I realized one of those, uh, one of those connectors was corroded. So that's good. Got the timing. So on. are you going to keep these Zenith carbs or what's the, yeah, what's so the I'm deal? going through the carbs right now. What is you like going through as in throwing them in the garbage and no, new ones or rebuilding everything. And how are they? Are the shafts tight and good yeah, or everything seems fine actually. Okay. Um, but what's interesting back in the day, you could buy so Stoddard was a Porsche um, parts catalog, basically. They still are. They still are, yes. But back in the day, they offered what's called a sport kit. So you could take your 2.2 and you could retrofit your car with a what is a 7,000 RPM rotor. You would do the sport exhaust, and then they'd give you new Venturis and jets for your Zenith carbs, and it would give you another 30 horsepower. Okay. So, so you're basically turning your 2.2T into a 2.2S. Yes. Okay. So I have 34 millimeter Venturis up from 27.5, All right. which is a big step. I went from my main jets from 115 to 150. Okay. And then all the other associated air correctors and sure. idle jets. So it all comes as a kit. Did you yep. buy the kit from Stoddard? No, because they don't it? offer it anymore. Where did you find this? I just There's a guy in Italy that he's the only guy that makes all these parts for these Zenith carbs. Okay. He's like the guy in his he's basement. I love the, the Zenith guy. carburetors. Yes, he the, loves the, them. You and him are the only guy in the world that loves no, Zenith carburetors. No, if you go on uh, like any of the forums and talk Zenith, they're like, oh yeah, go to this guy. Okay. Yeah. There's only one guy. Yeah. This makes sense. So, uh, but I, I thought I ordered two carb kits with all the gaskets and everything, you but ordered I ordered one. one. So I have one carb done. And the other you one's all disassembled. It's, it's 67 degrees And it's really outside. clean. And I have my new Venturis in, but I'm waiting. So I rush, rush shipped that. It'll be your money. From Italy. Yes. Okay. Uh, also relayed my headlights because you were getting yeah. on me about that. Yep. That'll be, that'll help a lot. Yep. I'm working on my, uh, hot rod deck lid. Yeah. Well. I've seen that you've been welding the whole shot and I don't understand where you're going with that. You'll but see, I, because I'll I also a, ordered some paint because yeah, we'll I'm going to, I'm going to just rattle can. It is the, the actual know, paint you, code. If you went down to the body shop where my car is getting painted, they'll probably just give you the bumper. If you just go get it. I should do that. You should do that. Okay. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm going to just rattle can the bumpers and my deck lid. It is the factory color, of course. Yeah. But I don't want to pay for a full paint job and right now. Sure. Yeah, yeah there's other things. That... There's other things that need to be done first, we'll say. So I uh, spent about three or four hours doing the spark plugs on the C43 AMG. Right. Which is it is I, it is a twin plug. I never heard of a twin plug engine other than Porsche's. It's common i guess i think is it really it is because it's like an emissions thing it's not a performance oh. thing it's like a complete burn thing right and i think that's probably what it is on this engine too is and maybe so, it's compression too but i don't think amg would have been like whoa we better twin plug this engine and like drill and tap i think the, all those v8 engines all were twin plug and i think it was probably well, for emissions not if it has different heads on the amg it doesn't okay as far as i know it does. I'm yeah. pretty sure that it does not. Yeah, have. I know in Porsche, you know, you have two spark plugs per cylinder, and that's because it's the uh, flame front when it's actually in combustion. It only propagates so fast. Basically, you right. can only have something burn so quickly, right? And Just the bore like, of these things is really big, right. which is what the problem is. So when is. you have a large bore and you need to burn all this because you're revving high, you need to have more than one source of where the flame say front propagates that from. my bore is 98 Millimeters. That sounds right. I want to say that's three point two. Yeah, it's been a long time since I bought pistons and put them in there, but I think they're ninety eights, which is uh, my two liter Volkswagen mm -hmm. four cylinder was eighty four. So just it's quite it's a big. Bit, it's big. They're big yeah. pistons, and you know when you look at the um the actual shape of the pistons, okay. they're very strange. It's like it's a Hemi, but it's only on one side, right? Of the because it has recesses for the valves, right? So it's well, no, 
yes. But, but the no. whole piston, I guess I it's, should say, is clearanced on that side. Right. Yes. Anyway. Okay. Uh, before we get into Kip, though, we uh, this is the last week to enter for our contest that we've been running on Instagram. If you've been on our social media, you've seen that for the month of March, Eyes Up Auto Art is letting us give away a custom commission painting of your car. And it's, I've enjoyed seeing some of the ones that I people was going to say, some of the submissions great. are really cool. Yes. It, it'll be fun. Um, so Eyes Up Auto Art is letting us give away this, this custom painting. They've done some really cool work for the likes of Audi's race team, Magnus Walker, and some really other cool stuff. You can go check them out. And it doesn't have to be a Porsche. No, absolutely you know, not. And actually not. not. Some of them are, of course, because yeah. we have a big Porsche listenership. Uh, but there's uh, runs the gamut. So that's really cool. Uh, the guy's name is Zachary Carroll. He's the man behind the brand and the brush. Uh, and their mission, as it states, is help to memorialize people's cars they no longer have, celebrate ones they do, or make a dream more tangible. And is really he has a unique style that really is kind of cool. Um, and you got to go check him out on Instagram at Eyes Up Auto Art. But to enter for this painting to win, you got to post a photo of your car on Instagram and tag both Overcrest Podcast and Eyes Up Auto Art. There you go. This will be released on Friday. You'll have two more days. Okay, sounds good. Um, So we're going to get into our interview with Kip, and uh, we really hope you enjoy it. Hey, guys, we're back. We've got Kip McIntyre. Is that right? McIntyre? How Mac, do you, McIntyre. McIntyre. Yeah. McIntyre. Sorry about that. Um, so we've got you <laughs> in studio. You're you're basically on your way home now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I got you on your way into Minneapolis. And then you spent uh, some time with Christopher Runge up at his um, at his ranch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of his, his, ranch, little hideout, yeah. his little hideout where he builds his amazing cars. And uh, I picked you up. I wasn't supposed to see you till now, yeah. basically, but yeah. something would happen that I had to end up seeing you quite a bit earlier yeah. than I was supposed to. Yeah. So I had engine failure in a big way. Engine. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah. let's, let's rewind a little bit. What, yeah. why do people would think that you would just fly in here, but you actually bought a van in Victoria, British Columbia. Yeah. Right. And why did you buy a van? Why didn't you just go where you were going and then just be there and just do it? Why did you buy a van? Yeah. So I was knew I was coming to America for three months and I couldn't afford a rental car and accommodation for three months. So I was like, let's get a car I can sleep in for three months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, um, my mate that I used to go to primary school with, he'd been uh, backpacking around Canada and he was like, I'm flying home. I said, just leave the van at the airport, <laughs> did the old switcheroo, and I started driving from there. And yeah, so. So he, he's the one that found the van. Yeah. So he, this, he, is, all, this he, is all his fault. Really. Yeah, yeah. So what is this van? Tell me about this van. I think it's 1978 Chevy van. So 350 Chevy. You know what's great is there's, there's no creative name for the van. It's, no. it's yeah. the, it's the Chevy van. Now yeah. it's like every van's like the Astro van or the, or yeah. uh, who knows, the, the Aztec is why I don't know why that's the first van that comes to my mind, but there's all kinds of vans, but it's the Chevy van. Chevy. Very, very simple, van. which I really yeah. like. So how did you get that thing across the border then? Cause that yeah. must've been kind of a. That was interesting because I'd flown from Australia straight into Vancouver. And the only thing I needed to do in Canada was pick up the van and start my road trip. So I flew in, landed in the morning, picked up the van and headed straight for the border didn't do anything in Canada and so you just have like a backpack and your little luggage and that's it yeah okay. pretty much like yeah just one you were planning to stay for like 30 days I mean this is like a pretty serious trip that you're going on 120 100 
Do I? You, oh, yeah, you, days, you've already the day been, after Christmas. Yeah. You've already been with Rungi for almost thirty days. Yeah, I don't think yeah, so. yeah. Okay, so one hundred twenty days. Yeah, three months. So I got it here like the day after Christmas, and um, yeah, so it's like the day after Christmas. I've coming across the border in Canada to America, and I've just turned up in the most like hippie looking van, Aussie guy by himself. He's been in Canada for one day. He's got a van and Full he's trying drugs. to cross the border. <laughs> the yeah. van is just jammed with drugs. That's what they're thinking. Like, yeah. how much pot does this guy have? Yeah. 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 And when, like, you're not from a country with a border, like, we're, we're an island, so I've never crossed a border really. So I was like, oh, like, I imagine it's just everyone doing what I'm doing. No, people, like, live on one side and they can go to work on the other side of the right. border. Yeah. Like, people cross the border every day. They just live there. Sure. It's not all people holidaying, like, vacation, road tripping. Like, right. So I was like, this will be normal. You know? And then I just pulled up to the the booth and hand the passport over. <laughs> she, she looks up at the window and just says, oh, you're going to have to pull over over there. <laughs> just pull into that bay. And the next thing is like, Eight guys, sniffer dogs, like yeah, I had to yeah. go in the big building. Yeah. Well, you know, those Australians are well known for bringing their drugs to Canada from Australia and then smuggling, smuggling them over the border. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah, I mean, exactly. to be fair, that's what you guys do all the time. <laughs> and um, yeah, so then I was in the customs room of like the border office and he's asking me all these questions. And after like an hour, he says, Right, so uh, anyway, we're not going to be able to let you in America because you've got uh, firewood up on the roof rack. And it turns out you're not allowed Canadian wood in America. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, they don't want like the, the bugs, the bugs and yeah. whatever, because Canadian bugs are. <laughs> do they stop the bugs at the border? Yeah, too I don't know. They like, can't walk across the border. <laughs> like there's a little zapper or something. Like, you're a Canadian bug. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then he turned me around and I said, well, what am I meant to do with the wood? And he goes, I don't know, throw it off the highway, I don't care. <laughs> you just can't come bring it here? He's like, I don't care, just as long as it's not here, throw it off the highway. I said, okay, let's do it. So <laughs> he turned me around, went back into Canada, and I was standing on the roof of the Chevy van just throwing all this wood into the forest. <laughs> and then I had another go, and unfortunately he wasn't there the second time I came through, so I had to go through it all again. Oh, no. Yeah, but that was all good. <laughs> he was on his lunch break or something. Yeah, exactly. So he ended so up traveling around the country for uh, – you know, 120 days and you're about to go home. What was the highlight of your trip that didn't have anything to do with, you know, the metal shaping, everything like that, completely separate from work? What was the highlight of your trip? Coolest thing about America was Memphis. Really? Why? And I had no idea that was coming. Like, it was, like, cause my road trip was completely planned, planned six, six hours in advance. Like right. I'd wake up GPS. How far can I get today? Oh, there. Oh, like six hours in advance every day. Every day. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd stop driving by the end of the day when I'm laying in the back of the van. I'd pull out the GPS. Where, where should I go tomorrow? Yeah, sure. Cool. That's where I go. So I had a lot of failures and <laughs> <laughs> poor decisions. Turns out, turns out Salem in Oregon isn't where the witches are. <laughs> They're on the other side in Boston or something, like Massachusetts Salem. But yeah. There's a few Salems. So, um, yeah. So th you fail on your holiday, like on a vacation. But it works with out no anyway, plan. right? Yeah. It works yeah, out. It turned into like the wildest like redneck party, like in this random little like town <laughs> that like, I was like, oh, this is going to be so quiet. And then walked in the bar and there's just like neons and like <laughs> DJ going berserk. I was like, right on. Like, <laughs> Salem is bumping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No witches. No but witches, hey. but it's a good party. Um, but yeah, so then... Yeah, Memphis. It was incredible. So I was expecting, I was hoping to get to North Carolina where I was going to go uh, spend some time 
in a workshop and um, I was like, oh, Memphis, I'll, I just want to go to uh, Beale Street, uh, Elvis's, Graceland, his house. And I said, oh, it looks like there's this cool uh, civil rights museum. I was like, oh, I'll go do that. That'll take up an hour or two. Sure. Yeah. So I wanted to do all of Memphis in one day. So I pulled in the night before, got up in the morning, went to the museum and spent seven hours there <laughs> in this museum. Like it was just incredible. Are you like, the guy that reads everything at the museum? Like you're just. Not once in my life have I read anything. <laughs> <laughs> but in that place, that's, I actually called mum. I was like, I read everything in this museum. Like yeah. it was because I guess we. Like we get taught about Australian history at school. You guys get taught American history. Yeah, that's so right. I had like a loose concept of stuff, but not like a like a good understanding of it. So we started from like day one, first African slaves coming over all the way up to yeah. Civil War is pretty yeah. serious history. Yeah, pretty dark. Yeah. So then, um, yeah. So then you get to like sort of towards the end of the museum, and you're looking at uh, like this one poster sort of thing. And then it says, if you just step to the left and look through the window, that's uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s motel room that he was staying in the day that he got shot. And then if you look right, there's like the balcony that he was standing on and you're like essentially standing in the same spot that he was standing and it says, and across the street, that's the window he got shot from. And like it's all like just been – you didn't know – like I didn't know it was coming. And right. It all, all this, you've just been learning about it all and it just comes to this climax at the end. It was just incredible. Well, no spoiler alert for anybody that was going to go to the museum. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you're from America. Well, mostly from America, so you should already know that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah. Martin Luther King dies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Did. Yeah, there's some pretty serious serious history that you can, yeah. if you spend the time in America, you can you can do some pretty serious yeah. stuff. So um, before we get into kind of about you, I thought you might want to tell everybody what so this you witnessed the most embarrassing thing yeah. i have ever done that has anything to do with a car <laughs> yeah. ever and i was so embarrassed that i just drove away <laughs> yeah. what was it like from your perspective and then i'll explain what i think happened yeah so this is the day after you came and saved me from my car failure. Maybe we should talk. Let's talk about that first. I want to get that out of the oh, way because that's yeah. your failure. We could talk about your yeah. failure first before we talk about yeah. my failure. So you called me at or you sent me a message on Instagram more of like a help. I'm stranded. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to do. You were truly screwed. Yeah. Like you had you were. Yeah. I was like, I, I don't know how things work here, but like if I was home, I would have just been able to deal with it but like it's right like well you don't know who to call it's yeah like exactly you just, so, you, um, so you called me you're, you're you're like my my van is is dead it's it's, it's, dead. it's dead i'm it's like it. what do you mean it's dead no it's dead and it's it and it at the time it's negative 20 degrees outside i'd never seen snow yeah so this, my life. so you, you come to see snow and then your van yeah. explodes and yeah. throws a rod through the side yeah of it. the insides become outsides yeah that was yeah. the extent of it yeah so i drove down and and picked you up and yeah. the tow truck driver yeah, so he was he was really cool, and he he was looking. He goes, "Oh, this is a cool van," and he's like, "I've actually got an engine that would go straight into it." So he was like, "So we did a deal," and he. What do you think happened to the engine? Oh, I, I think it was Australian, and it didn't like the cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was like me. He said, it had been hanging out with you for too long. Yeah, had, yeah. He's like, "Oh, I don't like this cold." It and, had had enough. Yeah, so I threw a rod out the side, and yeah. So we drove. I drove you up to Rungis because you were going to do your. 
you know, worked yeah. there for you know, like 30 days or whatever. Yeah. And I pulled up to the gas station yeah. or the, to put diesel fuel in. Yeah, that's where we did the switch over. Yeah. So, yeah, you dropped me off at the gas station. Chris picked me up there. And as you went to say, yeah, see you later, mate. You've driven off and I just saw this, <laughs> the gas pump handle just go flying through the sky. <laughs> and as you just keep driving off, was it, I was like, was it still man, they make those cars soundproof. Like <laughs> you didn't even notice. Just this fuel pump handle just flying through the sky. I 100% heard it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I'm just going to go. Yeah. I'm like, the first thought in my mind was, well, diesel's not flammable. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's one of those things that like, you've never actually thought about it because it just doesn't happen. But then like you see in like a, like on a YouTube video of like, Some, oh, gas You're like, ah, oh, look at that idiot. Like, yeah, that's a serious situation. And then like all of a sudden there's like a flying gas pump handle in a gas station. Was like, it pumping still? No. No, no thank so, God it wasn't pumping yeah, anymore. because like you and I, we were talking and that sort of thing. Like, so you started pumping, we walked off talking and then like, yeah, you just forgot to go back and finish off. The thing is, is that it was filling up so slow yeah, that I could. That's right. And the the the, the diesel exhaust fluid was leaking. Yeah. So I, I pulled up, put the thing in, started filling up, looked at it, it was going really, really slow. And I kind of just forgot about it. <laughs> yeah. I opened up the hood, I'm like looking at the turbo, whatever, whatever, moving your stuff from one car to another. Yeah. And I just completely forgot that I was yeah. getting fuel. Drove away <laughs> yeah. and just just and, and I heard it rip out. And I'm like, <laughs> oh crap. And then you yeah. ran over to me. And you, because were- you still had like the filler cap and the filler door hanging open, because <laughs> from the outside it looked like you had no idea that it happened. I was just like, he's he's oblivious. Like, this thing, this just could have been. I knew, but I was so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. And I turned around and I look at Chris through the window, and I just go, Shh. <laughs> I just held my finger up to my lips. I just went, Shh. oh man. Yeah, anyway, so um, tell us a little bit about uh, your Churchill Fellowship that kind of started this journey for you. What First of all, what is the Churchill Fellowship? Yeah. So the Churchill Fellowship, it's um, it's an organization that's been uh, put into place once. Uh, Winston Churchill passed away in about 1965 and they asked him, did he want like a university or something left as a legacy for him? And he said, no, that's more for like just academics. I want something for everyday people striving for excellence is kind of their motto. And um yeah, so then anyone in Australia is allowed to apply for one and it's about they they all get a grant and sent around the world to go and learn some knowledge that Australia doesn't, whether it's new knowledge or old sort of stuff that is died off in Australia. So there's people from like neurosurgeons that have heard about new systems or police officers going to learn new stuff and, yeah, and or old crafts and that sort of thing. So, how did you did you apply for this, or yes. how did this end so up happening? Yeah, so it's like eight months. It took like eight months for the application to do it all. Like, did you have to write something, or yeah, were you interviewed? Yeah, yeah. So, serious, like written out applications with references from kind of the best people in that field, saying, "Yep, he'd be a good candidate." How for did this. you get turned on to doing it in the first place? Yeah, so there was this uh, one man that uh, he was kind of a mentor throughout my sort of younger years and um yeah he he said that oh you've you're kind of headed in a really good direction um there's this thing called the Winston Churchill Fellowship he said I think you should apply for that and uh yeah his name was John Arbor and um yeah so he said I should apply for that I had a look at it I said oh cool someone will send me around the world to work in the coolest workshops in the world yeah I'll apply for that so yeah and it 
fluked it. Yeah, and like the the application. So you do all the written application, and then they had uh, the interview stage, which was at the Supreme Court in Brisbane. Oh like my gosh! Yeah, and like the panel, like it's it's like there's been people that have been Churchill Fellows in Australia. Thirty five of them have gone on to be uh, Nobel Prize. Recipients, right? Like, this, like we're talking about, like big movies and shakers. It's a, it's a and then me, experience. and yeah. then me. Just <laughs> hey guys, um, but yeah. So like at the Supreme Court, and there's like barristers and like you know just professors and that sort of thing, all sitting in this the biggest table you've ever seen, like just in a U shape around you, and they've given you like a little school desk <laughs> yeah. in the middle, and they've all got like a microphone with their name in front of them, and you're just like, oh no, yeah. what if I'm I'm not doing it right, and um. Yeah, so the interviews, you don't get to see anyone, like, interact. Like, you don't all sit in a room and then go in. Like, they time them perfectly. So I just see the one guy come out as I go in, and he's head to tail, suit, briefcase. He looks like he deserves a Churchill Fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's me, and I was like, I don't know what I'm meant to wear to this. So I had my blue jeans, cuffs rolled up, leather blo- like boots, Black and white, like Elvis sort of shirt, tucked in, hair slicked back. I look like proper greaser, like from the 50s. <laughs> yeah. And he's just walked out and I've just gone, oh, no. I've completely misunderstood this whole concept. Um, I don't and, think you did. And I was holding the whole fender off a car that I'd just metal finished and the whole thing was like not a dent in it, all perfectly polished and like essentially chrome almost. It was that perfect. So you brought your work with you. Yeah, like yeah. this whole thing. And there was like a metal detector in the basement of the Supreme <laughs> Supreme Court. I was like, ah, oh, can I just come in with this? And they're like, ah, oh, sure, <laughs> sure. And um, yeah, so I walked in the room and yeah, they all kind of went nuts seeing it. They were like- What were some of the questions they asked you? Some really interesting stuff. Like, so they, they based just on the background and that sort of thing of why, like how I started, why I would think- that Australia needs it. Like you really need to sell it to them to say, you should give me money and it will be beneficial to Australia to give me this. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, it's really interesting. And then some like oddball questions and that sort of thing. But yeah, like it's... Why do you think they chose you? Um, I think one of the main things that you'll find with every Churchill fellow is like, it's just like this... Their passion is an obsession that, and and they they're incredibly easy to get along with outgoing sort of people. Like it sounds a bit like it's all right, arrogant or whatever. But like you'll find that anyone that's been a Churchill fellow that you can sit at a table with them and they'll they're like they're equally as passionate about other passionate people. Like so, you could just sit in a room and they'll just all talk and like everyone gets on. And like, and everyone's happy to talk about their passion and spread their passion and share their knowledge, and that's like they love sharing their knowledge and that sort of thing. So, how was your passion in their eyes valuable? Yeah, so um, I think it's I think it's hot, really valuable, and I, I think they do as well. The fact that it wasn't purely just the fact that I was saying that we need to be able to repair classic cars nicely. It was it was also the fact that. It need that these cars need to be restored, or else there will be no classic cars in the future. Like you will just never see old Ferraris, old Porsches. Why is that? Why do you think that's important? Oh, that's <laughs> as a car person, you, just because it is. It just as, is. As but, a as a non car person, yeah. Why is it important to 
um, maintain these older cars and keep them around, do you think? Well, it's like, it's purely to show also like the learning curve that man has made through technology throughout the time. It's, it's, it's like having a museum of anything, like the Civil Rights Museum. Why do we care about anything that's happened in the past? If we're here, why look back here? Well, it's shaped who we are now. So you, if it just dies off, there's no that knowledge footprint. is gone. Yeah, and there's no footprint of how we got to where we are. So, and I also think that whether you're a car person or not, if you see like a nice, beautiful Rolls Royce or a old Ferrari just driving down the street on its way to go to coffee or something on a Sunday morning, you know, everyone appreciates. I think it. there's like, like uh, I think there's an inherent beauty in craftsmanship, yeah. and I yeah. think that. Even if you aren't into, like, I'm not into art or let's say I'm not into, um, not necessarily into woodworking or any, yeah. like those type of things. Yeah. But even as a layman in those topics, I can look at good craftsmanship and see yeah. it and go, yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. I can feel it. I see it. Yeah. I can understand why it's important. And yeah. I think that that type of mentality transcends different crafts. Yeah. And I, yeah. and I think Absolutely. that's, I mean, I think that's probably what they saw yeah. in you yeah. um, for sure. And I think you know, sending you around to learn from other craftsmen. Um, how has that helped you? Yeah, it's it's been insane. Like it's like just the practical hands-on knowledge that I learned has just helped so much. Like just, yeah, I've just learned so much more. So my work has got so much better. And it not only did it make, uh, open that window to get more knowledge, it also opened a, like a, a doorway to, contact with anyone I want in the world really so like I've got all these contacts in so I, I went to America England Italy and Germany right and there's handfuls of people now in those countries that if I've got a question about anything I just go Instagram or text message or email I go how would you approach this or what would you do with this or like just anything like that like it's just made access to knowledge just so much easier like whereas if you don't really if you haven't been there, you haven't had that opportunity to be open to those sorts of people, you just kind of don't go out and look for it in a way. Like it's, you kind of just stay and do your own thing rather than. Right. Yeah. So what do you think of uh, coach building and general hand craftsmanship? It was for, for at one point in society, um, at least in America, I'm assuming everywhere in the world, craftsmanship was all there was because everything had to be made by hand and done by hand. Yeah. And over time that, you know, disappeared in, in lieu of manufacturing and obviously digital stuff now or whatever. How do you feel that with coach building, that it's something that's as of now is still really reserved for the elite? Like only the the fairly wealthy people are able yeah. to afford it. Yeah. Does that bum you out that the regular people can't participate in your passion? Not so much. No, it's, I think it's good that there are coach builders doing like really incredible quality work on Ferraris that are now selling for what, 45 million US? Like it's good that there's people doing that and that inspires other people to go, oh, I'd like a really beautiful car. But there's also craftsmen, like there's, there's people in this trade that are doing varying qualities to match budgets all the way up to that elite. So it's not so much that I think everyone should be only getting high quality jobs. I think everyone should be building whatever car they can at whatever budget they can. Sure. Because like I've, none of my cars have ever been expensive. Like, <laughs> or, yeah, like none of my cars have been perfect. Like one of like 
my pride and joy was my 1971 Chevelle that I bought when I was 21, had it for seven years and it was probably the rustiest car I've ever owned. Like, but I made like cut rust out of cars and made the metal finished and no Bondo and made perfect Ferraris and Rolls Royces and that sort of thing. But my budget didn't suit that and my time didn't suit that, but I was out there driving these cars, enjoying them. But um, so it's good that there's people out there building cars to any quality, any budget, and they're all out there doing it. But I, one of my things is I like to try and push the people that are building these cars or the tradesmen working on these cars. Is, oh, instead of just knocking a dent out in Bondo, see how much better you can get it before you need to use the Bondo and always, like every repair, just push it that little bit further than you did on the last one until all of a sudden you realise that, oh, I'm getting really good at doing this and no Bondo and it becomes really nice it car. becomes aspirational. Like when you have a, a thing, things that are being done on the level that you're doing them and some of the other craftsmen are doing them, that it gives something for people to shoot for, aim yeah, for and look yeah, up to, exactly. which, I, which I think is really important. So the more these guys with the less skill are seeing more people doing really cool work, it goes, oh, maybe I could do that as well. Like it's sure. good, to, good to see. That's where, that's where it all started for me, seeing other people doing cool stuff. So before we go any further, I want to mention uh, our Patreon page. I need you guys to head over to overcrest.com slash Patreon. You can uh, hear exclusive episodes there. You can get episodes early. This one uh, has already been listened to by all our Patreon members. You can stop over there, support us, get a free t-shirt and uh, feel good about yourself supporting the podcast. So you, um, you traveled around, uh, like you said, to Italy, Germany, United States, yeah. Britain, um, but you stopped at Jay Leno's garage. What was yeah. and uh, what was that like there? I mean, you were there for a long time. Yeah, uh, at Jay Leno's garage. I spent a day there. Yeah, well, yeah, a long time when you're just a visitor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. I expected I'd go in there and say hi and be like 15 minutes, have a look at the cars, and I get out. Right, yeah, right. It was, yeah, it was it was wild. So I um. I'd managed to get in contact with him from an email address and that sort of thing. And I contacted him. He said, yeah, absolutely. You have to come out, have a look at the shop and that sort of thing. So we organized. It was like a, it was like the Monday or Tuesday after Pebble Beach, sure. which um, was there. And, yeah, so I pulled in the driveway and the, go- the gate rolls open. There's Magnus Walker standing there <laughs> talking to Jay Leno <laughs> and they're just hanging out because I think – uh, it just been Magnus had just been given an AMG to drive around in for the week. Sure, and um, so they were looking at that, and so I've just driven in and gone once again. I just don't feel like I'm the right person to be here. Like, right. feel like an imposter. Um, but yeah, so then I, uh, I think one of Magnus's friends was interviewing Jay Leno that morning, and so it was really just Magnus and I walking around for like three hours, walking around the collection while they did their filming and that sort of thing. Sure. And um, so was there something that stood out from his collection to you that you um, really liked? I was never a real big Lamborghini Mura fan, but then when you see like a bright yellow and a bright orange one just sitting next to each other with battery chargers and registration ready to drive out the door, you're just like, that's super cool. <laughs> like, that is two like iconic cars in just the wildest colors, yeah. just sitting there like at the front, like right next to the roller door, just ready to go. But, Did you have the opportunity to work on anything while you were there? Yeah. So that's the interesting thing, like with the filming and that sort of thing. So they'll set up the cameras for like half an hour and then they film like that shot for like five minutes and then 
like set up different angle for another half hour. So like every time that they would say cut, Jay Leno was back across from like the collection side into the workshop side. He's like, thank God I can go work on some yeah, stuff, get away was, from these cameras. Yeah, it was as soon as it cut, off he goes. Yep, right, I see ya. And then he's across into the workshop because he's uh, his old Dusenberg was like the carbies were playing, the carbies were playing up and it wasn't running right. So he was like trying to pull the carburetors off this Dusenberg. And um, yeah, and they would like, after like setting up the cameras, they'd come back over. He's in the workshop covered in oil and fuel. And they're like, right up, we're ready to film. And he'd just wipe his hands on like a rag or just the side of his jeans, run his hand through his hair and like get his hair straightish. And he was like, let's go. And yeah. like, that's his, that's his prep to be on a camera. Like he, yeah, it was really cool. And I was really shocked. Like I just figured that, he was just rich and owned them and liked them, but then turns out he's working on them as well. Like I thought he'd just pay people to fix all his cars, but he was he was in there up to his elbows and we were trying to pull these carbies off and yeah, like working on that and and like he's got a library that's like bigger than my house, just of like original old manuals, like Dusenbergs and that sort of thing. And so we got the carburetor out and then he, we were in the library and he's looking for his Dusenberg carburetor book and he's, <laughs> oh, there it is. And it's like this old leather bound book, flicks it open. Oh, yep, there it is. <laughs> like, yeah, that was really cool. Really cool. But yeah, so I think it was, I think we were, I was there probably about six hours. Yeah. When it got to the point where I was like, okay, I've definitely overstayed my welcome. Like this is getting ridiculous. So I, I was walking over to him to say, oh, um, thanks for having me. Like this has just been incredible. Like. See, see you later. And before I could get that out, he's like, are you hungry? Have you been to Burger King before? Like, <laughs> and I hadn't I hadn't been to Burger King at that stage. He's like, jump in the car. We'll go get Burger King. And next thing we're I, I wouldn't have picked the car he chose and you wouldn't have picked the car what, he chose. What was it? He just got a brand new Tesla. No, <laughs> man, of all the cars. Yeah. No. And yeah, like, I, and I've. I'd, How great would it have been if you would have been like, what car would you like to take to Burger King? As if I'm yeah. not picking the steam-powered fire truck. <laughs> <laughs> Where's 500 gallons of water? Let's start this thing up. But um, We'll go to eat at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. And um, but yeah, so we got in that and like he was just in love with it. Like he thought it was the coolest thing on earth. And I'd driven them all before, like coming from high-end uh, collision work. Like yeah. every time a new car came out, we were the first ones to – play with them so I, I drove the first that little tesla roadster when it came to australia i got the you know i drove one of them like yeah so i was kind of over the teslas by that stage yeah. and then he's like jump in this you'll love it i was like oh i've been in them <laughs> like so sad for you that you got to go to lunch with jay leno but you had to take a tesla yeah i know yeah i'm, I'm super sad I'm about really that for you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you went off to uh to europe and uh and you went to italy what was being in yeah. italy like there's amazing craftsmen there did you Learn a bunch from those guys. It's interesting. So Italy, I would have to admit, was the most, the biggest letdown of the whole trip. Really? Um, Why? Yeah. Well, I kind of expected it to be anyway, but um, Italians are known for doing the lowest quality work. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the way well, they the way they build cars is really bad. Like, in what way, what do you mean? In what way? Ah, uh, just the and we're talking like more of the classic cars, yeah. Right? So now everything's made yeah. by Audi anyway. Yeah, but. exactly. Um, so I'm talking, yeah, like early Ferraris and that sort of thing, um, like 60s, 70s Ferraris, and um, yeah, because I'd worked on Dinos, I'd done a 308, like I'd worked on a few, and like as you pull them apart, and once generally all you need to do is like just take carpet away or some paint off, and you start to go. Oh, well, 
Enzo really just did want these things to just race all the way along the track and they just had to survive just a metre past or, or a foot past the finish line. Right. And they were allowed to just fall apart after that. And many the chassis times they could did. be built from stuff that we went to get at Home Depot right now. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. we could yeah. make a Ferrari chassis in my garage yeah. right now. Yeah. I've got a welder. Let's do <laughs> yeah. it. Oh, man. I'm not even <laughs> sure if they used a welder. Like it's something <laughs> you just wonder how they did it. Like it's, yeah, like there was um, on that one Dino, like it was, you genuinely un- wondered who they got to weld that or like whether they went for lunch or something and they had too much wine and pizza and they came back and <laughs> Giuseppe welded it up and he was like drunk or something. I don't know. Right. It was like it's really poor quality. So what is that? Uh, are they ashamed of that? Or no, no. and that's the, that's the interesting thing is so I went over and everyone said you won't be allowed to work in any of their workshops. They just won't have it. It's, Italy has their secrets. They think they're the best and they won't share their secrets with anyone else. And so I got to visit. I went to Ferrari. I went to Lamborghini. I went to like a handful of like the little coach builders that were doing all the restoration work. And they like, I, I spent like quite a bit of time at Ferrari and Lamborghini. But then like when I went to the little workshops, they would give me like an hour of their time, maybe two hours, look around the workshop. But none of them would let me stay for like a week and start working on the tools and that sort of thing. Like, you like working with them and learning like they said yeah well that's what we do see you later and they yeah, just so they weren't interested they in just like, weren't having a but they were like nice guys They're really nice guys but they just didn't yeah. want to help you yeah. in any way shape yeah. or form like yeah. they just like you're not everything was you're classified have, you're gonna, yeah you can have a quick look at our workshop but you're not getting any of our tricks but you know in a way like it's not the biggest loss because <laughs> in the in the grand scheme of things, they were doing the lowest quality work of. Well, all. our podcast is no longer popular in Italy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's going to be plummeting down the charts. Yeah. Um, so, um, what were you up to at Rungies? What were you guys doing up there together? Yes, um, we were working on his latest commission, which I think it's he's up to thirteen cars now. But I think this was called uh, RS Ten. Um, Man, I can't believe he's up to that many cars yeah, now. I know. It's crazy. And um, yeah, so we were, we were just hanging out, just swapping tricks and building cool cars. That's, like, the, yeah. that's the way to do it. Yeah. So walk me through a typical day at the shop for you. Like what are you working on mostly? What are like what kind of tools do you have around? Yep. What's a typical day? So just before I came on my trip, I was I just finished uh restoring a 1957 356 uh Porsche. Uh, yeah, so that's an A. Pretty what were you doing with that? A. Um, yeah, so that was a complete restoration. That was, that car was in a really bad way. So it was just a shell on a rotisserie, bare metal, and yeah, there was just months in cutting out rust. Is there? Do people restore stuff more in Australia because it, I mean the, the the scarcity level must be pretty high. I mean, there's not a lot yeah. like here. There's like cars all over the place in Europe. There's they reckon you just what, pull them out 80, of barns all the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's not happening exactly. in Australia, right? No, no. So we don't have that history in classic cars that you guys do. Like, like yeah, we don't have Ferraris just rocking up and old Rolls Royces and that sort of thing. Like, yeah, that stuff just doesn't appear. Like, if it's in Australia, people know where it is, and it's probably in good, like fairly good condition. Where, but um, but yeah. So I think does that bum you out? A little, little bit. bit, yeah. Like when, like when you get to Pebble Beach and you're just like, "What's that thing?" Like <laughs> you never even heard of it, let alone seen one. Like right. just some really exotic stuff out there in the world, so that we don't get to see. But um, but yeah. So it was, yeah. It's a day, and yeah, we're doing 
I do a lot of Porsche restoration at my workshop where I'm working at McKernan Restoration uh, back in Australia. But um, so I do all the body work, all the metal work. Um, Brad that I work with, he does all the mechanical and chassis building and that sort of thing. Like he's building himself a Porsche 910 from scratch. Okay. Um, yeah. Some of the work that I've seen you do with like deck lids and fenders that are just destroyed and you, and you see it and you're like, no way. That's a brand new part. There's no way that yeah. that's, but, <laughs> yeah. it, but these are the original parts that yeah. were hammered that, I mean, how much time do you have yeah. to spend? Uh, to be fair, you called me out a little bit. Cause I sent you pictures of my car getting the flares put on and you said, dude, we could have done that in all metal as there's like three pounds of like body filler, <laughs> which to be fair, hadn't been sanded off yet. Yeah. But I mean, what is it with you and doing things only in metal? Yeah. It's That's, a bit of an obsession. I've yeah. Got, like, like what's going on, man? You could do it. Uh, well, cause I started off in like port. I was a uh, repair technician for Porsche in Queensland. So I learned when I did my apprenticeship when I was 17. So I learned to like metal finish everything because that's what I was told had to be done. So there was no bondo in any of those, that collision work going back out the door. And yeah, I was always passionate about restoration work. So I was like, well, why don't I just transfer those skills into fixing old cars? And if you can fix, well, with practice, but if you can fix a hail dent or like the size of a penny or something, you just keep going if it's a bigger dent. Like, and then like if something's really beat up, it's just going to take a little bit longer. But At some point, is there can, a diminishing return where you're like, hey, you just got to replace this panel? Is there any of that? Or are you like, I can do this? Yeah, like if, if the part's available. But sometimes, a lot of the time, you just can't buy these parts. Like on that 356, it got all new, like front end. Like it got new fenders, new nose. But we saved the hood and the rest of the car. And door skins we replaced. But... Are you yeah. doing this stuff with just like like hammer and dolly or is it yeah, um, lead? Yeah. Are you doing any lead yeah, so, work? Yeah, so with the 356, they were already pretty heavily loaded with lead from the factory to get them really nice. Like So they don't even want you to see like the lapped like joins on door skins and that sort of thing. So they'll lead fill that so you can't see any folded door skins and that sort of thing. So it's correct to put the lead back in and that sort of thing. So then um, – and they were a production car. They were in a factory, so they were – churning these things out at a profitable rate. So things got moved around and just filled that with lead and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, generally metal finish as much as we can and then the gaps where the lead was originally, we'll put the lead work back into that and, yeah. So how is new technology like uh, 3D printing, 3D printing, 3D modeling, has that changed the way that you guys do your restorations at the shop? Yeah, it's pretty exciting to see where that's going ahead. I think America's already doing a lot more of it than what, Australia is just because there's such an abundance of people doing it in America. Uh, so it's still quite expensive uh, to get stuff 3D printed or designed and made and that sort of thing and 3D scanned. But as it gets more popular in Australia, it's going to be really useful. But like even just as much as cutting out like all your timber buck forms and that sort of thing, that used to be drawn out by hand but from a picture of a car, draw the profile out, cut it with a saw and – so do you, together, but now you can CNC the whole car out. Oh, out of wood. They use out a CNC machine to make yeah, the box for you to make form. all the different stations and then piece them all together like a jigsaw puzzle and it's done. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Um, what have you uh, learned traveling outside of coach building? Like what, have, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in meeting all these people and all these craftsmen and everything like that? I reckon probably the biggest thing you learn about people from all my travels at least, I found that, 
everyone's essentially the same. Everyone just lives in different places and might speak a different language. So everyone has a family generally. They go to work. They try and earn enough money for food, rent, and some nice things here and there. Like I don't think there's any radical differences whether you're an American or an Australian or English or Italian. Like everyone's generally the same, just doing their thing, putting their head down, doing what they can. But, yeah, so I, I think it was – It, it kind of makes all the differences that everybody creates for each – they, they create yeah. in their heads. It yeah. makes them seem really petty. Yeah, exactly. And like generally any idea that you've got about someone is because it came from like the news or that person was worth talking, like was that different that they were worth talking about and spreading a story about them. They're not, like you don't hear a story about everyday Minnesota guy goes to work at a bank like in Australia. Like we're not going to hear a story about him. Right. We'll hear a story about like a crazy American with a big gun. Like, that's what we hear. <laughs> so, so like, yeah, I think you get like extreme or like disproportionate ideas of people. If it ends up in your newsfeed, it's probably because they're a bit different. Like That's probably, that's yeah, probably true. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on current cars as restoration candidates in 30 years? Yeah, that's a nightmare. That's, <laughs> I'm not going to have any part of that. I'll so, be dead before then so and happily. <laughs> from all the lead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not meant to eat it apparently. Yeah, yeah. But do you think anybody's going to be like, oh, that was the first Tesla Model 3, I'm going to restore this. And I mean, is that even going to be possible with all the technology and everything? That's- yeah, well, at the moment, I'd say no. Like, that's ludicrous to think that who's going to do that. But also, I'm coming from a mindset that I just swing a hammer and fix a metal panel. But they're teaching kids in schools now how to 3D print stuff, how to 3D model stuff. So there's no reason in 30 years that some kid's not just going to print out a brand new Tesla on his computer. Right. Like, so I think. The technology that will go along with learning to make things will come along with it. Like I personally, I restore cars, but there's no way I could 3D print a bumper bar for a plastic bumper bar for a Tesla. Right. But there's no reason some other kid can't. Like you can make plastic um, turbo fans. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's coolest. <laughs> that's yeah. the coolest thing ever. Like for sure. Yeah, that's like, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Say, so, hey, Alex, <laughs> 17 inch rims, turbo fans, send them to Australia, and he goes. Print. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's mind blowing how, yeah. how things have gone. And like where he's doing it from. Like you'll see yeah, it in his dorm be, room. Yeah, he'll be on Instagram and he's like, oh, I just got this running. And he just like opens a door in his dorm room and he's just like, like just print Do you have out. like, is there any like, do you feel any resentment for that someone can do and create something so easily when for you to do it out of metal and lead takes so much longer? Not really, because we're doing different things. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, I really like where the technology's going. I reckon it's it's going to make things easier for me. Like as if I decide that I want to, we're looking at making a three five six outlaw when I get back. We're considering like designing our own wheels for that from scratch. And you could just before you even make one, go and get one CNC'd out of a billet. You just print it out of plastic, bolt it on the car, and go. Does it look good? Yeah. Yes. No. If it doesn't look good, it didn't cost you all that much, and you can print out another one till it looks right or the fitment's right or I like yeah. I like your optimism it's uh it's, it's <laughs> awesome I'm far more cynical than yeah, you are on, yeah. on everything as you know but uh I really appreciate you coming in and, and talking to me and um I'm glad your van broke down so we could hang yeah, out more together yeah. and uh not glad that the gas tank thing ripped out but I'm glad I got to yeah. hang out with you again tonight okay. and uh I hope it's not too far down the road that I see you again. Summer. I'm going to have a go at summer in Minnesota. All right, man. Not That's... this one, probably. I've got All too right. many cars to do. Sounds great, man. Thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care, man. Bye. 
That was awesome. I that was an awesome interview. And I'm, you know, it's here's funny. The thing I, is, you didn't, you weren't here. No, so it was just I was Kip just going to say, I'm sorry I missed it because I was, uh, I couldn't join you for that. I was celebrating my wife's birthday, something I probably shouldn't have uh, missed to come record with this. But what? No, your wife's birthday. Totally okay. We'll, we'll let it slide. <laughs> um, but no, it was really cool hearing that because, I mean, what he said about the fellowship and how he got it. And I loved his attitude like, I don't look like a guy that should be getting this, but it really is. Were Talk about walking into the room with yes. a fender in his hand. <laughs> yes. Ah, that's so cool. Um, so we really hope you enjoyed the interview with Kip and uh, we'll see you next week with Patrick Long. Yes. Uh, make sure you hop over to iTunes, give us a five-star review or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. We'd love to have re- your review there as well. Absolutely. Take care, guys, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>